Chapter Thirteen of the Gold Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Thirteen, The Third Waterfall. The others followed Rod's arm. Behind him, he heard the gentle click of Wabigoon's revolver and the sharp, vicious snap of the safety on Mukoki's rifle. From beyond the driftwood there was rising a thin spiral of smoke. "'Whoever they are, they have certainly seen or heard us,' said Wabi, after they had stood in silence for a full minute. "'Unless they are gone from camp,' replied Rod in a whisper. "'Keep eyes open,' warned Mukoki, as they advanced cautiously in the direction of the smoke. "'No can tell what, I guess so.' He was first to mount the driftwood, and then he gave vent to a huge grunt. The smoke was rising from beside a charred log which was heaped halfway up its side with ashes and earth. In a flash the meaning of the ash and dirt dawned on Rod and his companions. The fire was banked. Those who had built it were gone, but they expected to return. The naked footprints were thick about the campfire and close to one end of the charred log were scattered a number of bones. One after another, Mukoki picked up several of these and closely examined them. While Rod and Wabigawan were still gazing about them in blank astonishment, half expecting attack from a savage horde at any moment, the old warrior had already reached a conclusion, and calling to his companions, he brought their attention to the tracks in the sand. "'Same feet!' he exclaimed. "'One man make all track!' "'Impossible!' cried Wabi. "'There are thousands of them!' Mukoki grunted and fell upon his knees. "'Heem big toe, right foot, broke some time. Same in all track, see?' Disgusted at his own lack of observation, Wabigoon saw at once that the old pathfinder was right. The joint of the big toe on the right foot was twisted fully half an inch outward, a deformity that left a peculiar impression in the sand, and every other track bore this telltale mark. No sooner were the two boys convinced of the correctness of Mukoki's assertion than another and still more startling surprise was sprung on them. Holding out his handful of bones, Mukoki said, "'Meat no cook. Eat raw.' "'Great Scott!' gasped Rod. Wabi's eyes flashed with a new understanding, and as he gazed into Rod's astonished face, the latter, too, began to comprehend the significance of it all. "'It must have been the madman.' "'Yes.' "'And he was here yesterday.' "'Probably the day before,' said Wabi. The young Indian suddenly turned to Makoki. "'What did he want of the fire if he didn't cook meat?' he asked. Mukoki shrugged his shoulders, but did not answer. "'Well, it wasn't cooked anyway,' declared Wabi, again examining the bones. "'Here are chunks of raw flesh clinging to the bones. Perhaps he just singed the outside of his meat.' The old Indian nodded at this suggestion and turned to investigate the fire, 
On the end of the log were two stones, one flat and the other round and smooth, and after a moment's inspection of these, he dropped an exclamation which was unusual for him, and which he used only in those rare intervals when all other language seemed to fail him. "'Bad dog man, make bullet here!' he called, holding out the stones. "'See? Gold! Gold!' The boys hurried to his side. "'See? Gold!' he repeated excitedly. In the center of the flat stone there was a gleaming yellow film. A single glance told the story. With the round stone for a hammer, the mad hunter had pounded his golden bullets into shape upon the flat stone. There was no longer a doubt in their minds. They were in the madman's camp. That morning they had left this strange creature of the wilderness fifty miles away. But how far away was he now? The fire slumbering under its covering of ash and earth proved that he meant to return, and soon. Would he travel by night as well as by day? Was it possible that he was already close behind them? "'He travels with the swiftness of an animal,' said Wabi, speaking in a low voice to Rod. "'Perhaps he will return tonight.' Mukoki overheard him and shook his head. "'Make him through chasm in two day on snowshoe,' he declared, referring to his trip of exploration to the first waterfall over the snows of the previous winter. "'No make in tree day over rock.' "'If Mukoki is satisfied, I am,' said Rod. "'We can pull up behind the driftwood on the farther edge of the lake bed.' Wabi made no objection, and the campsite was chosen. Strangely enough, with the discovery of the footprints, the fire, the picked bones, and the stones with which the mad hunter had manufactured his golden bullets, Mukoki seemed to have lost all fear of the wild creature of the chasm. He was confident now that he had only a man to deal with, a man who had gone bad dog, and his curiosity overcame his alarm. His assurance served to dispel the apprehension of his companions, and sleep came early to the tired adventurers. Nor did anything occur during the night to awaken them. Soon after dawn, the trip down the chasm stream was resumed. With the abrupt turning of the channel to the north, however, there was an almost immediate change in the topography of the country. Within an hour, the precipitous walls of the mountains gave place to verdure-covered slopes, and now and then, the gold-seekers found themselves between plains that swept back for a mile or more on either side. Frequent signs of game were observed along the shores of the river, and several times during the morning moose and caribou were seen in the distance. A few months before, when they had invaded the wilderness to hunt and trap, this country would have aroused the wildest enthusiasm among Rod and his friends but now they gave but little thought to their rifles. That morning they had set out with the intention of reaching the second waterfall before dusk, and it was with disappointment rather than gladness that they saw the swift current of the chasm torrent change into the slower, steadier sweep of a stream that had now widened into a fair-sized river. According to the map, 
the second fall was about fifty-five miles from the mad hunter's camp. Darkness found them still fifteen miles from where it should be. Excitement kept Rod awake most of that night. Try as he would, he could not keep visions of the lost treasure out of his mind. The next day they would be far on their way to the third and last waterfall. And then the gold. That they might not find it, that the passing of half a century or more might have obliterated all traces left by its ancient discoverers, never for a moment disturbed his belief. He was the first awake the following morning, the first to take his place in the canoe. Every minute now his ears were keenly attuned for that distant sound of falling water. But hours passed without a sign of it. Noon came. They had traveled six hours and had covered twenty-five miles instead of fifteen. Where was the waterfall? There was a little more of anxiety in Wabigawan's eyes when they resumed their journey after dinner. Again and again Rod looked at his map, figuring out the distances as drawn by John Ball, the murdered Englishman. Surely the second waterfall could not be far away now. And still hour after hour passed, and mile after mile slipped behind them, until the three knew that they had gone fully thirty miles beyond where the cataract should have been, if the map was right. Twilight was falling when they stopped for supper. For the last hour Mukoki had spoken no word. A feeling of gloom was on them all. Without questioning, each knew what the fears of the others were. Was it possible that, after all, they had not solved the secret of the mysterious map? The more Rod thought of it, the more his fears possessed him. The two men who fought and died in the old cabin were on their way to civilization. They were taking gold with them, gold which they meant to exchange for supplies. Would they, at the same time, dare to have in their possession a map so closely defining their trail as the rude sketch on the bit of birch bark? Was there not some strange key, known only to themselves, necessary to the undertaking of that sketch? Mukoki had taken his rifle and disappeared in the plain along the river, and for a long time, after they had eaten their bear steak and drank their hot coffee, Rod and Wabigawan sat talking in the glow of the campfire. The old warrior had been gone for about an hour, when suddenly there came the report of a gun from far down the stream, which was quickly followed by two others, three in rapid succession. After an interval of a few seconds, there sounded two other shots. "'The signal!' cried Rod. "'Mukoki wants us!' Wabigawan sprang to his feet and emptied the five shots of his magazine into the air. "'Listen!' Hardly had the echoes died away when there came again the reports of Mukoki's rifle. Without another word, the two boys hurried to the canoe, which had not been unloaded. "'He's a couple of miles downstream,' said Wabi, as they shoved off. "'I wonder what's the matter.' "'I can make a pretty good guess,' replied Rod, his voice trembling with a new excitement. "'He has found the second waterfall.' 
The thought gave fresh strength to their aching arms, and the canoe sped swiftly down the stream. Fifteen minutes later another shot signaled to them, this time not more than a quarter of a mile away, and Wabi responded to it with a loud shout. Mukoki's voice floated back in an answering halloo, but before the young hunters came within sight of their comrade, another sound reached their ears, the muffled roar of a cataract. Again and again the boys sent their shouts of joy echoing through the night, and above the tumult of their own voices they heard the old warrior calling on them to put into shore. Mukoki was waiting for them when they landed. "'This is Biggin,' he greeted. "'Make much noise, much swift water.' "'Hurrah!' yelled Rod for the twentieth time, jumping up and down in his excitement. "'Hurrah!' cried Wabi. And Mukoki chuckled and grinned, and rubbed his leathery hands together in high glee. At last, when they had somewhat cooled down, Wabi said, "'That John Ball was a pretty poor fellow at a guess, huh? What do you say, Rod?' "'Or else pretty clever,' added Rod. By George, I wonder if he had a reason for making his scale fifty miles or so out of the way. Wabi looked at him, only partly understanding. What do you mean? I mean that our third waterfall is more than likely to be mighty close to this one. And if it is, well, John Ball had a reason, and a good one. If we strike the last fall tomorrow, it will be pretty good proof that he drew the map in a way intended to puzzle somebody, perhaps his two partners, who were just about to start for civilization. "'Mookie, how far have we come?' asked Wabigawan. "'Tree-time first fall,' replied the old Indian quickly. "'A hundred and fifty miles, in three days and one night. I don't believe that is far out of the way.' then, according to the map, we should still be a hundred miles from the third fall. "'And we're not more than twenty-five,' declared Rod confidently. "'Let's build a fire and go to bed. We'll have enough to do tomorrow, hunting gold.' The fourth day's journey was begun before it was yet light. Breakfast was eaten in the glow of the campfire, and by the time dawn broke, the adventurers were already an hour upon their way. Nothing but confidence now animated them. The mad hunter and his golden bullets were entirely forgotten in these last hours of their exciting quest. Once, far back, Rod had thought with chilling dread that this might be the madman's trail, that his golden bullets might come from the treasure they were seeking. But he gave no thought to this possibility now. His own belief that the third and last fall was not far distant, in spite of the evidence of the map, gradually gained possession of his companions, and the nerves of all three were keyed to the highest tension of expectancy. The preceding night Mukoki had made himself a paddle to replace the one he had broken, and not a stroke of the three pairs of arms was lost. Early in the morning, a young moose allowed them to pass within a hundred yards of him. But no shot was fired, 
for to obtain the meat would have meant an hour's loss of time. Two hours after the start, the country again began to take on a sudden change. From east and west, the wild mountain ridges closed in, and with each mile's progress, the stream narrowed and grew swifter, until again it was running between chasm walls that rose black and silent over the adventurers' heads. Darker and gloomier became the break between the mountains. Far above, a thousand feet or more, dense forests of red pine flung their thick shadows over the edge of the chasm, in places almost completely shutting out the light of day. This was not like the other chasm. It was deeper and darker and more sullen. Under its walls the gloom was almost that of night. Its solitude was voiceless. Not a bird fluttered or chirped among its rocks. The lowest of whispered words sounded with startling distinctness. Once Rod spoke aloud, and his voice rose and beat itself in the cavernous depths of the walls until it seemed as though he had shouted. Now they ceased paddling, and Mukoki steered. Noiselessly the current swept them on. In the twilight gloom Rod's face shone with singular whiteness. Mukoki and Wabigawan crouched like bronze silhouettes. It was as if some mysterious influence held them in its power, forbidding speech, holding their eyes in staring expectancy straight ahead, filling them with indefinable sensations that made their hearts beat faster and their blood tingle. Softly, from far ahead, at last there came a murmur. It was like the first gentle whispering of an approaching wind, the soughing of a breath among the pines at the top of the chasm. But a wind among the trees rises and then dies away, like a chord struck low and gently upon some soft-toned instrument. This whisper that came up the chasm remained. It grew no louder, and sometimes it almost faded away, until the straining ears of those who listened could barely detect it. But after a moment it was there again, as plainly as before. Little by little it became more distinct, until there were no longer intervals when it died away, and at last Wabigawan turned in the bow and faced his companions, and though he spoke no word, there was the gleam of a great excitement in his eyes. Rod's heart beat like a drum. He, too, began to understand. That moaning, whispering sound floating up the chasm was not the wind, but the faraway rumble of the third waterfall. Mukoki's voice broke the tense silence from behind. "'That the fall!' Wabigawan replied in words scarcely louder than a whisper. There was no joyful shouting now, as there had been at the discovery of the second fall. Even Mukoki's voice was so low that the others could barely hear. Something between these chasm walls seemed to demand silence from them, and as the rumble of the cataract came more and more clearly to their ears, they held their breath in voiceless anticipation. A few hundred yards ahead of them was the treasure which men long since dead had discovered more than half a century before. 
Between the black mountain walls that so silently guarded that treasure, there seemed to lurk the spirit presence of the three men who had died because of it. Here, somewhere very near, John Ball had been murdered, and Rod almost fancied that along the sandy edge of the chasm stream they might stumble on the footprints of the men whose skeletons they had discovered in the ancient cabin. Mukoki uttered no sound as he guided the canoe ashore. Still without word, the three picked up their rifles, and Wabigawan led the way along the edge of the stream. Soon it dashed a swift, racing current between the rocks, and Rod and his companions knew that they were close upon the fall. A hundred yards or more, and they saw the white mist of it leaping up before their eyes. Wabi began to run, his moccasined feet springing from stone to stone with the caution of a hunter approaching game, and Mukoki and Rod came close behind him. They paused upon the edge of a great mass of rock with the spray of the plunging cataract rising in their faces. Breathless, they gazed down. It was not a large fall. Wabi silently measured it at forty feet but it added just that much more to the depth and the gloom of the chasm beyond, into which there seemed no way of descent. The rock walls rose sheer and black, with clumps of cedar and stunted pine growing at their feet. Farther on, the space between the mountains became wider, and the river reached out on either side, frothing and beating itself into white fury, in a chaos of slippery, water-worn rocks. Down there, somewhere, was the golden treasure they had come to seek, unless the map lied. Was it among those rocks where the water dashed and fumed? Was it hidden in some gloomy cavern of the mountainsides, its trail concealed by the men who discovered it half an age ago? Would they find it, after all? Would they find it? A great gulp of excitement rose in Rod's throat and he looked at Wabigawan. The Indian youth had stretched out an arm. His eyes were blazing. His whole attitude was one of tense emotion. "'There's the cabin!' he cried. "'The cabin built by John Ball and the two Frenchmen. See, over there among those cedars, almost hidden in that black shadow of the mountain. Great Scott, Mookie, Rod, can't you see?' Can't you see? End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline